On the Empire Podcast this week, we go to Brooklyn with Saoirse Ronan, which is nice, while we also ask Bradley Cooper and Sienna Miller one big question. How to get burned? How to get burned? How to get burned? How to get burned? Yes, how do they get burned? Um, all that and more on the movie podcast that will not rest for one minute until Chewbacca gets his own Force Awakens poster, damn it. Now let's grab a bite to eat. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning. You all know her. You all know how she makes a living. It's, it's our geek queen, loving her dragons and her Winchesters. It's Helen O'Hara. How are you? I feel like your heart isn't in it this week. <laughs> well, I'll tell you why. Partially because uh, I wrote the script on the tube. Right. And I was really struggling for an intro line for you. Sure. Okay. And then I realised that this week... It's not just the old stagers. It's not just you and I. No. We have, once again, an injection of fresh new blood for us to <gasps> suck. Uh, uh, for us to Bathing. basket. No, wait, uh, no, uh, no, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, please welcome our, our other new junior online staff writer, John Nugent. Hello. How are you? Good. Long time listener, first time podder. Cool. Well, welcome to Empire. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. A uh, couple of things. One of the reasons I didn't do an intro for Helen in my time-honoured fashion because I, I wanted to introduce you as well uh, and then I wanted to ask about your first day at Empire and then I wanted to ask about Helen's first day at Empire and just okay, get, you know, sure. so that's why yeah, I'm not just making this stuff up Helen yeah, alright you are but it works so let's go with it it says here riff aimlessly for five minutes <laughs> uh, John, well you're right on point how long have you been at Empire now two weeks a week two, just, just, just coming week? up to my second week your second yeah. week yeah. right uh, what was your first day like were you were you terrified or were you okay it was uh, it was surreal it was very surreal I've I've been reading Empire since I was 13 years old um, probably I think my first copy was the Attack of the Clones cover with um, Christopher we don't, we don't, Lee we don't talk about um, don't I don't know. I, don't, I can't remember who reviewed that. I, I... Nicely no. played. Hey. <laughs> you can keep the job. It's all good. Um, but no, the first day was, yeah, surreal, I think is the main words. Uh, you spent most of it trying to come up with a nickname for me. Yeah. That work continues. The, the work continues. To, to explain, John has a self-imposed nickname, The Nuge. You have a blog, don't you? The Nuge. I do have a blog called The Nuge, published, yes. Yeah. That's not allowed here at Empire. You don't have your own nickname we bestow a nickname upon you yes uh, so if you have any ideas out there listeners for what we could possibly call John for example Helen over the years has become Hell's Bells Heleno uh, what else do we call you to your face <laughs> I can't remember uh, what am I do I have a nickname Neighbour obviously Neighbour and uh, you know Nick and I call each other Elman for no reason Phil calls me Elman Ali Weiber calls me C. Hughes uh, uh, that's the polite ones to my yeah, face, but yeah. yeah. I don't want to talk about the other one. <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> uh, so we're not, we can't allow John to come up with his own nickname. It's just not allowed. So if you can think of something that we can call the Nooch, uh, Jane Nooch, John, then please do <laughs> send him in. So otherwise, all good? Otherwise, all good. No sexual harassment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Give it time. It's early days. <laughs> I mean to have your boy, even if it must be burglary. <laughs> oh. Well, I'm quoting a film! I'm quoting a film! What's a deal with quoting films? <laughs> Helen, what was your first day like at Empire? My first day, my first full day, I was actually uh, sent off in the evening to cover the premiere of Peter Pan, the 2003 Peter uh-huh. Pan. Um, 
which was a, a bit of a baptism of fire, but it was pretty awesome, you know. And, and it gave me a completely false expectation of how life was going to be because <laughs> it was one of those premieres where back in the day, you could go to a premiere and you would get like two minutes chat with everybody in the cast. Nowadays, like 30 of you share 30 seconds chat. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, so I got a, a chance to talk to absolutely everybody involved in the film. Um, I then got to sit and watch the film in the plush surroundings of the Empire Leicester Square. And then we even had invites to the freaking after party which no definitely never happens and it was the one that the stars were actually at oh, which wow. also never happens and it was also because um, uh, Mohammed El Fayed was a producer on the film it was catered by Harrods and it was literally just piles of sweets and deliciousness like everywhere it was amazing I actually talked to a red grave I did it was exciting was it a dog Sparky, <laughs> yeah, Sparky Redgrave. Yes, What's that, that Sparky? <laughs> Vanessa's locked boy? in the toilet. Who's that good boy? <laughs> what year was that? Was that two thousand? It was two thousand and three, December. Okay, yeah. just to make you feel slightly old. <laughs> no, don't do that. I think I was in year eleven. I think I, mean, I, think I was I'm having so, my nappy change. I'm so old, I don't even know what year eleven is. We had like fifth form, so I was yeah, I, probably about fifteen or sixteen. Okay, then. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, just, so were we, obviously. When can we, we get rid were, of him? We were prodigious. <laughs> How about your first day, Chris? My first day, Helen. Thank you for asking. Was the Empire Awards 2001, 2001. I was plunged in at the deep end and I was terrified and I wore my, my best, cheapest suit. Wow. And I'd literally just moved to London, I think the day before, maybe two days before, because I moved over the job. And I remember being utterly terrified. I remember everyone being really, really lovely. And uh, I think I've said this on Twitter before, but I had a list of questions I had to ask everybody. Mm-hmm. Like I had to go around the party afterwards and corral people and ask them stuff for the magazine. And I uh, collared the League of Gentlemen and I forgot my questions. And I just because <laughs> I was so nervous. And I'd interviewed pretty big people. I'd interviewed, for example, the manager of the local football team in Banbridge. And <laughs> wow. I did, I'd interviewed David Trimble. Didn't you speak to Daniel Radcliffe's granny as well? I interviewed... I mean, big names. Wow. Daniel Radcliffe's granny, because Daniel Radcliffe's dad is from my hometown. And Daniel Radcliffe, whenever he was announced as Harry Potter, uh, I got on the phone with his, sadly now, dearly departed grandmother, uh, and, and, and got an exclusive interview with her. I mean, this is no mean feat. They Chris. don't call me Scoop McKenzie for nothing. <laughs> So I rose to the middle of that particular trade, then went swiftly on to Empire. Uh, yeah, so first I, so then I, I dried up in front of the League of Gentlemen, and Mark Gatiss touched me on the arm and went, you're doing a lovely job. Because I'd said it was my first day, and I was really nervous. And I also talked to Brian Singer that day, I remember that. Uh, that, was, that was fun. And then I almost saw, I didn't quite see, but I almost saw um, one of my, my colleagues at Empire, who, who should remain nameless, naked from the waist down. Wow. Yeah, because uh, they were all changing in a in a hotel room. We had a hotel room at the Dorchester. Uh-huh. And I was with a couple of people and we walked into the hotel room and this lady obviously hadn't put the lock on the door and she was bottomless. And, Good Lord. Yeah. Not in the manner of Mary Poppins' bag, but... <laughs> no, I've, I think we were all with okay, you, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Should I enjoy your picture? I have a picture. No, no. <laughs> and uh, luckily, my, my eyes were averted, so that was a, that was so a close call. Are we, are we supposed to be wearing trousers now? <laughs> I, You'll I, fit right in, John. You've learned you've, too quickly. You've got the vibe already. I love it. Well, welcome. Welcome. Thank you very much. It is very good to have you. Right, we're going to have some questions now. Uh, one question uh, sent in via Twitter from at R3TT3, which is either a way of saying Retta, or it's a, it's a droid from Star Wars who's become sentient 
travel forward in time to a different galaxy and started asking questions on Twitter. Possible. Uh, what are your favourite scenes involving a character wearing a disguise? The disguise need not be effective. <laughs> now, if, if either you don't say pistachio disguisey, then this, this <laughs> is immediately over because he is the master of disguise. Well, you've already said it. So I know. Done. But how I- do you know I am Chris Hewitt? <gasps> Oh my goodness! <laughs> the stupid. Oh no, I am him. Okay. Okay. Um, I really enjoy bad disguises. I really enjoy, <laughs> you know, when someone puts on a fake moustache and, and then passes unremarked by everyone around them. I think it's delightful. But you know, I couldn't actually think of very many cases of that happening, uh, at least on purpose. I mean, obviously, all the disguises in the Saint are terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't think they're deliberately so. Oh, brother, where art thou? Is probably the closest I can think of when uh, when you've got you know George Clooney pulling down his beard to reveal himself <laughs> oh, yeah, to yes. the audience the as Soviet he sings. Bottom boys, yeah. Indeed, yeah. that's like um, that's like a, a movie version of It Is I. Leclerc from Hello, Hello, the guy who would come in every week in disguise. Clearly a really, really terrible disguise. I love Hello, Hello. The worst disguise ever has to be Superman. Um, But he must just carry a, a cloud of credibility around him. That That's the only way to really explain it. There, there's literally no other way it works. And then my other favourites, uh, obviously Some Like It Hot and Mrs Doubtfire, I think still work brilliantly, especially Some Like It Hot. And then Zoolander, when they use a tiny little <laughs> portable mate travel case, remember? To create the most astonishing disguises. It's almost as if they're completely different people. It's amazing. It's the power of makeup. Yes. It is, yeah. I wanted to know how we define a disguise. So does magic or technology count? For example, Loki in basically every appearance in the MCU, mm-hmm. he sort of disguises himself as various people to get up to mischief. Yeah, I think Loki is usually a right answer around here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a disguise. Yeah, especially when he disguises himself as Captain America. Yes, you like that, don't you? I do, yeah. yeah. I've had that dream. And also by a similar token, uh, T-1000 in Terminator 2. Yes. He disguises himself via the, the magic of future technology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the Mars Attacks, the Martian who pretends to be <laughs> oh, yes. a woman. The way she walks Yeah, the creepy walk. Lisa Marie. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think was Tim Burton's she was, I believe, girlfriend. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and she uh, bites off Martin Short's finger. <laughs> Which sounds like some dates I've been on. Hey. <laughs> Hang on, you've been on dates, you've bitten off Martin Short's finger. <laughs> yeah, I, I love, I, this is a great question. I love this question. And again, we're not going to be definitive, so send in the things we missed or got wrong later on. What about love, uh, but last week's Halloween questions is that they were all subjective. So no one could go, <laughs> no, Chris, the film that scared you as a child was actually... <laughs> okay, there's loads. I mean, obviously, Inspector Clouseau was always mm-hmm. uh, disguised himself... <laughs> With fat suits and whatnot, I love the the disguise of Frank Drippen at the beginning of Naked Gun, where he's disguised as a as a, as a waiter, and then he reveals himself and busts up a meeting of the world's most nefarious evil men. <laughs> I love that scene so much. Return of the Jedi, Princess Leia disguises herself as the uh, as the bounty one. hunter yeah. uh, Bush Bosch Bush. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. You uh, you mentioned fat suits. There's oh, yeah. always uh, the Big Mama's house. We don't saga. talk about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the the trilogy. Yeah, Big Mama's house, Big Mama's house two, and uh, Big Mama's house like father, like son. Uh, as we all know. As we all know, absolutely. That's that. That's a classic. They, they always saw it as a trilogy. Um, <laughs> How can you have this category without talking about Dr. Peyton Westlake in Dark Man? Um, that's one of the, some of the best disguises are the ones where you, you know, there's a, 
a race against time before the disguise in some way reveals itself like Arnie in Total Recall mm-hmm. when he's disguised as a woman and it all begins to malfunction yeah. two weeks two weeks, sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, two weeks. Um, actually also Arnie in Junior when he pretends to be a former member of the German women's shot putt team was it <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is why he looks like a man who is pregnant <laughs> Of course. Of course. Of course. Absolutely. Uh, and how can we not mention Bond, who's always disguised himself as, <laughs> you know, whether it's a clown in Octopussy, Roger Moore dressed up as a clown, which mm. is just ludicrous. Uh, and then possibly the most offensive of them all is when Sean Connery in You Only Live Twice disguises himself as a Japanese man by brushing his hair forward. <laughs> and and this is how they got away with this. I've no idea. He He literally pulls his eyes up. I mean, I, I want to just, say it was a more innocent time, but innocent okay. really isn't the word. It was, a, it was a. What is was, going on? It was, it was racist, a time. It is a time. It is. It was a racist time. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just staggering. Yeah. On a sort of less racist but Bondy note, uh, the pre-title sequence from Russia with Love, mm-hmm. uh, the Spectre operative oh, who we right. think is Sean Connery, but Red Grant, yeah. Uh, turns out, spoiler alert, he isn't spoiler oh, yes. for a 50-year film. Similar opening in Mission Impossible 2. In fact, Mission yeah. Impossible in general, like their yeah. disguises are really quite impressive. It's almost <laughs> like they're not realistic, but <laughs> except they are, of course. I, lo- I love the uh, I love the idea that in Mission Impossible, obviously they you know it's been explained away. They have a voice alterer, sure, but at the same time. Ethan Hunt seems to have studied these people so much that he can actually assume their mannerisms and and height, which, <laughs> which is which is kind of weird. Yeah, obviously, um, he's that good. He he's, really is that good. Chris. He is that good. There's tons, there's tons and tons of disguises. I mean, the ex-presidents from um, if you know if you call out a disguise at the beginning of well throughout Point Break. There's, there's I mean, there's just. If we, we we could be here talking about disguises all day. The Joker as a nurse in Dark Knight. The Joker as a nurse. Yeah, he looked really good he, as he, a nurse. He really pulled it off. Yeah. I thought Angelina Jolie in Salt. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. She's sort of very feminine man. Yeah, she puts on a fake chin, which helps. Yeah, bit. I had quite confusing feelings watching that. Mm. She's <laughs> she's a very attractive man. <laughs> well, that that film started off as. Uh, Edwin Salt. That's okay. right. Yeah, sort of as a, as a Tom Cruise vehicle, and then he then he thought, oh, "Hang on, this is a bit too close to what I've I've been doing for the last few years." But yeah, there there are tons, and there are comedy ones that go wrong, and there are scary ones, and all sorts of stuff. And really, isn't the biggest disguise of of them all, Helen, ourselves? <laughs> oh my God, you're so deep. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> just throw it out there. Just let that one sit. Yeah, just let that one sit for a bit. Okay, if you want your question to be treated with the same level of respect we treated the uh, Retas, which I thought was a, a very good question, send them in via Twitter. We're at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast. And you can Facebook us, Empire Magazine. And you can email us as well, podcast at empireonline.com. Uh, okay, time now for our first guests. Uh, Bradley Cooper and Sienna Miller started the year together in American Sniper, along with a creepy robot baby. And now they're ending it together in the chef drama Burnt, which was once known as Adam Jones. Uh, Phil Dissemlian went along to speak to them both this week. He did not bring with him a creepy robot baby. Uh, but do enjoy the interview. Bradley Cooper, Sienna Miller, welcome to the Empire Podcast. Thank you. Talk, Thanks for having us. To talk about Burnt. Yes. Which, before we get started on, on other things, the movie, it's had a few titles down in its iteration. Yeah. Obviously, Chef was one. Yeah, yeah. the first one. Uh, and then it became Adam Jones. And now it's Burnt. 
do you have friends and family who think you've been doing three different movies and wondering where you found the time? Uh, no, really, it just went from chef to burnt. Adam Jones was, I think, just a, a hold while they were discussing what the title was going to be. That was out there, though, I feel like, for a while. Mm. Do you get attached to film titles along the process? No. No. Just whatever. Not whatever, but no, I wouldn't say get Not whatever, to. but whatever it sort of yeah. is released as. Right, right, the right. one. Um, in this movie, obviously, you played Adam Jones, who is a chef, a uh, recovering alcoholic, and he's had some substance abuse problems. And Sienna, you play Helen, who's his sous chef, and they have a, obviously a slightly awkward relationship to kick off. Yeah. And it's, it's full of amazing food. And, mm. and people are going to come out of this movie salivating. One of the things I loved about it, delicious-wise, was the, the idea of the family meal in the restaurant where when they're not cooking the fancy food they're cooking for each other yeah. and I wondered what you guys would cook for your family meal I always do kind of roasts and things like that every Sunday I'll do a roast and have an open house and lots of friends and family come over yeah just things like that comfort home food Okay. I mean, it's usually some sort of stew, uh, some sort of uh, conglomeration of all the food that's been left over. You know, that's what the family meals usually oh, are. Oh, is that right? On yeah. Sets, okay. Yeah. That's the thing. You know, I grew up cooking in kitchens uh, as a prep cook and, um, you know, feel pretty dexterous in the, in the kitchen, love to cook. And then, you know, a two Michelin star restaurant going after its third star is a whole other world. It's like a baseball team, you know, getting ready for the world series. I mean, it's just like every single moment is so filled with pressure and intensity to a degree that I've, you know, you just think why, I mean, it's just so difficult. The amount of pressure, uh, the sacrifice that chefs at that level, anybody who cooks in a kitchen at that level has to go through. is just mind blowing. It looks terrifying. The film does an amazing job of, of conveying that. And the camera gets in amongst you guys. Yeah. Was it, were there any awkward moments? Any kind of slip knives or... Oh, all the stabbed, time. Stabs oh, and yeah. Oh, we were constantly... We got burnt all the time. Yeah, and Bradley cut his hand open, didn't he? Yeah. Did you? Was a couple actually- times, yeah. Well, on the plate, when he's smashing the plate. There was a time where he smashes four yeah. plates. On the second plate, uh, the, the plate cracked and went in my hand and then I kept going. Ouch. Yeah. Luckily, it was the last take. Was it the last take of the film? Or the no, last take no, it wasn't that, that severe of a gash. Oh, okay. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was worried about the, the shucking oysters bit, and that was the first day of filming. Because if you ever, if, if, I don't know if you've ever shucked an oyster, but that is recipe for disaster. You, one slip, and you're, you're, the knife's going right through your hand. Oof. And uh, and it's a jag. It's it's not really you know it's a jagged knife in a way. It's a thick knife that's a shucking oyster knife. And uh, yeah, and I must have shucked. Oh my gosh, 60, 70, 100 oysters that day. And they had 10 prepped for me, like that were a little loosened, but we went through those in about 10 seconds. And so the rest of the day, they're just sort of, everybody's sort of behind the monitor going, is this going to be the one that takes them down? That's amazing. I always wondered when you're doing films, I mean, uh, the skills that you, t- you can take on from what you learn yeah. preparing. Yeah. I'm hoping American Sniper isn't one of those ones, but you know, you know, it's impressive. I know you can cook anyway, you guys, but... No, we worked any- hard. I yeah. mean, we really, we, we would do 15 to 20 minute takes. Um, you know, when you're not shooting on film, you have a lot more um, um, ability to do that. Mm. And it really was John Wells had set up a, a bunch of orders that day. Uh, the me's for everybody, everybody's place had been set for that food. And then I would call out the orders and they would roll camera and we would make the food. And if people were messing up, I'd have to go over there and, and, and deal with it. You know, as a, 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 as a, you know, a commander of this brigade. And so it was a lot of, uh, a lot of cuts, a lot of mistakes and uh, a lot of pressure, but that was really the only way to do it because otherwise it wouldn't have felt authentic, certainly not to us and not to you watching it. And we really do care about chefs, people in that world watching this movie that they will sit there and say, Oh yeah, no, there are no hand doubles. There are no cooking doubles. We can feel that this is real. 
you have a uh, you have a special dish in this film, obviously the turbot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've talked about dealing with turbots on a daily basis. It's yes. like it's a fish like it's out of the James Cameron's The Abyss, isn't it? It's got these huge oh, yeah. ugly eyes. It's a really ugly fish, but it's also a really expensive fish. It's like a, a serious delicacy and absolutely delicious. But notoriously hard to fill it, so it's quite a cool skill to be able to do that. Talking about American Sniper, I had a, you guys obviously worked together on that. That came out earlier in the year, so yeah. it's another partnership of you guys. I found, heard an interesting coincidence, which was that when you went to meet Clint Eastwood, you were driving to the studio and they played the Gorillaz song Clint Eastwood came on as I was driving through the Warner Brothers gates and I was like this has got to be a sign it did it did kind of buoy me up a little bit you know it It is amazing how little moments in your life can just dictate the next two years or potentially 20 because that one experience then we did Sniper and then Chef and now we're here and if that hadn't happened then this definitely wouldn't have happened yeah it's that's a really weird coincidence. Yeah. Isn't that funny? There's I know no I song. Loved it. There's no song called John Wells. Obviously, you're just no, putting no. it into no, the. No. Unfortunately, have you ever had a kind of weird serendipitous moment like that in your career that you can think of? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know if this is an unfair question, but do you have favourite movies of each other's performances that you particularly? I love? do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. The interview. Right. Her. Heard of it. Yes. I haven't, I haven't oh, seen man. the interview. That movie, that, that scared me. Steve Buscemi directed it. It was just a two. And stars in it. But I, I, it scared me, actually. Because we, we, her audition tape was incredible for Sniper. But I, I, I always thought, like, is she the woman from the interview? Because <laughs> it was so great. And she's nothing like her. But, man, she was so convincing. I mean, that was a, very, that was a terrifying character. Oh. It's a bit like this, isn't it? The interview. Uh, stuck with a journalist for you, you, you hope you want to hope that it's not no 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 because <laughs> you're the interviewer he's actually been brilliant in absolutely everything but there is something mad I mean American Cyber for me was just a transformative it's just not the same person and then I saw him in Elephant Man and there was no way that that was the same actor but there is a real magic to me of his performance uh, in Silver Linings Playbook I just love I love the energy of it I love the guy I think it I just love that movie. Pat Solitano. Pat's great. I want to go back and watch the interview now knowing you. I wonder how it'll be. It'll be so different, I bet. Yeah. I'm not allowed to ask any questions about Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Um, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I probably am, but definitely not on tape. <laughs> Do you have, uh, it's, it had a, amongst other things that people loved about it, had an amazing soundtrack. Yeah. Um, you're a musical man. Do you have any, any tracks that you'd like to see on the second mixtape? Oh man, I would never speak for uh, our director, and uh, you know, it, it, just speak for yourself though. You could pick uh, one that you love. I, I don't actually. I really don't know. I don't even know where it's going. I haven't seen a script. I have no idea. I'm and I'm as out of the loop as you are. I do have a question that's sort of sequential to that, which is that your next movie, Dog's Dog's Purpose, yeah. you're voicing a dog, yeah. and I wonder what Rocket would think of that. Uh, he wouldn't care because he's not. He has. He doesn't consider himself even a raccoon. Ah, so he wouldn't. He wouldn't. No, he's a he's, a he's a he's a he's a he's a he's a badass mercenary. <laughs> um, you've worked from an outsider's point of view. You guys have worked with really you know lots of very interesting directors. But David O. Russell and Bennett Miller, Foxcatcher, specifically, um, those two directors. They, there's a sort of perception of them that they're they're a little different in the way that they work. But maybe a bit more intense, or the experience is a bit more draining for you as actors. Is that is that fair, or is that just a kind of a myth, a, a myth that's built up around them I'd say that Bennett yeah he uh, he's a very intense character and incredibly cerebral man and very measured and I think that his way of telling stories is for the st- for the camera to really be a kind of voyeur so it feels like there's another character just watching what's going on and it's a very unsettling very still very patient 
way of making a film. And that set particularly was incredibly focused and serious and unpleasant, I think, for a lot of people. Mm. But I think that might have been intentional on his part. As a person, he's very sweet and kind. And did, you find, did you find that difficult? To work on that film? Yeah. Yeah, I, the atmosphere was, was charged, but I think that served the film. And I was in brand new motherhood so the whole thing is honestly a bit of a blur but he's uh, I'd say one of the greatest filmmakers he's extraordinary and you're back with um, David on Joy and you've had a very auspicious partnership with him so far um, I mean he's like my brother I love yeah. him you know we've done three films together and he really really allowed me to be a collaborator with him and a partner with him from the beginning being able to executive produce Silver Linings in American Hustle um, so you know I, I feel like I went to film school uh, I love him I, th- I think you know he's changed my life my career uh, the way I look at movies um, I love the way he works I've definitely taken everything from him and put it into uh, every other movie I've done if I ever get a chance to direct I'll, I'll take so much of what I learned from the way he runs a set well, we're looking forward to seeing Joy seeing the next one yeah I have to ask this. It's an annoying question, I know, but but American Sniper, obviously, a, a huge, huge hit. Like I think after Saving Private Ryan, the biggest war movie, U.S. war movie. I think, I think it's the biggest. Well, the biggest yeah. U.S. war movie, yeah. box offices, all the awards buzz, great movie, people loved it. The, are you are you aware of the baby uh, meme that sort of grew no, up around? No, never heard about. That. No, okay, fair enough. Of course, we are. <laughs> I, I, what was what was your feelings about about that? Was that just one of those things that was an annoying kind of? Um, I mean, on the day? Yeah. Just I mean, the, no, just because we thought it would, you know, be solved by visual effects in the end. But, you know, you just, you know, you're there and you do, I don't know, to be truth, we were in such a zone. Yeah. It didn't even matter, honestly. Like, I don't know. I felt kind of uh, that whole, that whole experience. I remember those days, it didn't even matter. Remember? I mean, it was just like, I don't know. She you was so dropped into Taya. And, um, you know, we're playing real people. Yeah. And yeah. there was such a huge responsibility um, that, uh, yeah, I never, it never even like, I, I thought it would just be fixed in the end. You know, it was an unfortunate thing that it wasn't. Watching the movie, it's distracting. And I think it's, it was an error that it, you know. Yeah. Um, have you guys had conversations about a third project together? How would, how, what are you? You've... We've talked about maybe doing a play one day. Yeah. If Bradley directs, I would love to be directed by him. I yeah, I would love so to fantastic. do anything with her. I think we'll work. I think for again. sure, maybe yeah. yeah, maybe the next thing. Last question: uh, You have both worked in restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask how you would have how you'd have done it working at Adam Jones. Oh God, horribly. <laughs> really? Oh my gosh, yeah. I don't want to work there. No. No, do you? No. no. God no. <laughs> God no. No, it looks absolutely it looks, not. It looks miserable. Maybe by the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe by yeah. the end, it looks nice. Yeah, you never see any puddings in that movie, which is a shame because I imagine yeah, the puddings were amazing. Cake. The cake. Oh, oh the cake, really? Obviously. Yeah, there's two cakes. Actually, there's oh, a great shot of a. Uh, it was my the favorite. I actually made that bit. cake in real time during the scene, and uh, and that was fun. That was really fun because I remember they, they remember they had this other cake that they were going to put in, and I said, "Well, let just give me get, let me get a, take a crack at it," and the cake I made worked out perfect. So we that's what's in the movie. That was fun, and it was just fun always to do that. And I love that shot of the chocolate being dipped around, and I always wondered how they made that and look so perfect. You know that they but you drain the chocolate and it fits. Did you ever? wonder that I thought yeah, yeah, uh, yeah how yeah, do they yeah. do it with no crease or anything well it doesn't just all gather around the bottom like a moat yeah but it drains yeah, yeah. I did not know that yeah you'll learn many things from this movie um, Sienna Miller and Bradley Cooper thank you so much for joining thank the Empire you. Podcast so thanks for having us thanks <laughs> that was Bradley Cooper and Sienna Miller we'll be talking about Burnt later on in the review section uh, I suspect we're going to give it three Michelin stars <sighs> <laughs> shall we um 
should we talk about some movie news now? Sure. Okay, let's do that. All right. So what's been happening this week? Well, uh, there's been some some good news, some bad news, some something in the middle there. There was news of The Crow, which is sort of relevant because Corin Hardy, obviously we had him back on our live podcast in Edinburgh in the summer. Mm-hmm. His film, The Hallow, is out, I think, next week, isn't it? His, his very scary movie, which I saw this week. Um, and his next movie, The Crow, finally has a start date. It's going to shoot, we are told, in March. So um, it was caught up for a long time there the, when Relativity Media was the studio that's kind of funding it was was shut down. Uh, the remake of The Crow seemed to be one of the films affected, but it now seems to be back on for the first quarter of next year. Now, we still don't actually know who's going to be starring. Um, mm-hmm. He did talk to, was it you, Chris, <clears throat> the current issue? <clears throat> yes, I went down to um, Corrin's house, actually, in uh, near Brighton. Cool. Uh, it's an awesome he's got a pretty awesome man cave the sort of man cave you would not like to be trapped in on a scary on a dark windy night because it's full of scary toys and whatnot sure. it's, a, it's a horror fan's house a haven uh, it's really really cool um, but we, we chatted for a long time about The Hallow which is really good and uh, obviously The Crow as well some things I can say some things I can't say but uh, yeah I'm really glad of this happening if it hadn't happened I think he would have been okay I think he would have he would have directed a film he's been trying to make for years called The Refuge which is a, a, a Yeti movie which sounds pretty damned awesome as well but he's as anyone who listened to the live podcast from Edinburgh knows he is a huge Crow fan at the age of 17 he would dress up as the crow, as Eric Draven, he would go, you know, and uh, pretty uncannily as well. So this is a this is a character and a property that's in his blood, so to speak. And I think he's very much the right choice to do it. Um, and they came so close before the the money dried up. So uh, it's good to see it back on the uh, on the road. Definitely. And uh, and yeah, so we'll we'll talk about I guess the Hallow next week. Um, a little bit of casting replacement news for the girl on the train. Um, so this adaptation of the bestseller, it has its its lady cast is in place. Emily Blunt is still there. Rebecca Ferguson is still there. Um, Edgar Ramirez, Alison Janey. But Jared Leto mm-hmm. has left due to a scheduling conflict. Mm-hmm. That follows the departure of Chris Evans yes. as well. He was replaced by uh, Justin Thoreau. One of these things is not like the others. I know, indeed. And now Jared Leto is being replaced by Luke Evans. Okay. No, good guy. We like him a lot. Yeah. Um, again, a slightly different energy. So... Um, who was once attached to be the crow, of course. He was, yes. Yeah, Maybe Jared Leto's going to be the crow. <gasps> that's how rumour starts. <laughs> we start the... No, that's wrong. We try not to. Anyway... I can't believe um, Jared Leto's a crow. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Calm down, Chris. Just deep breath. Uh, but yeah, so that's, a, that's an interesting um, addition to that cast. Um, it really is getting very close now. Um, it's due out on October 7th, 2016. So just under a year now to go. Uh, and That's what else cool. have we got? Um, in, in other good news, um, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Banks has uh, signed up to another role. She's going to be starring in Rita Hayworth with a hand grenade, which is uh, a new, rather interesting sounding kind of take on war movie. She's going to be playing a conflict photographer called Caroline Baker um, in a sort of riff on John Borman film, Hell in the Pacific, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which was also kind of remade as, was it Enemy Mine? It was remade as Enemy the, Mine. The sort yeah. of, uh, alien version of the same. Yeah. Anyway, her character Baker gets shot down over a Pacific island, uh, presumably during World War II we're guessing and uh, is marooned with only a Japanese soldier for company wow yeah that, yeah. Is, that is I mean hell in the Pacific um, go back and listen to the John Burman podcast we had we talked uh, quite a bit about that uh, that experience of shooting that film was traumatic for him for, for many reasons one that uh, Toshiro Mifune the great Japanese actor who was in it just 
had nothing but contempt for John Berman. You go back and read about the making of this film. It's incredible. And go back and listen to John Berman interview. Uh, so hopefully there won't be quite such a... He would refuse to take direction. He wouldn't speak in English to him, all this sort of stuff. It's amazing that the film came out as well as it did. And I hope that nothing as traumatic befalls this movie. Sounds, Indeed so, yes. cool. Yeah. Uh, we've got some Star Trek news. Mm-hmm. Uh, Star Trek is returning to the small screen. So excited. Cowabunga. Yeah. yeah. 2017, we're getting a new show. We don't know much about it yet, do we? We know basically nothing. We know <laughs> we know that Alex Kurtzman is uh, at least executive producing it. Mm-hmm. He was a writer on the two rebooted movies, Star yeah. Trek and Star Trek Into Darkness. He was. Um, and we know that it's on CBS All Access, which is like a sort of streaming service for CBS, which is an interesting move. It won't be on regular TV, at least at first. Maybe that means they'll have the finally the hardcore swearing and, and sex that uh, Star Trek has lacked uh, before. Alex Kurtzman, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't really been keeping up with this, but I imagine this hasn't got Star Trek fans that excited because I think they, they see him as, as an enemy, don't they, really? I mean, the, you know, he's, he's certainly tainted with a, with a, a brush. Uh, after certainly after Star Trek in the Darkness, I think um, there is that bit bit of schism, isn't there, between the sort of talky science of the TV show and the mm. explody action of the, the the recent movies, which yeah. Kurtzman has been a part of. But then I think, I mean, the two thousand and was it nine uh, Star Trek yeah. was great. Yeah. I mean, and I think mm. we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that it was it was great. It was a very very clever take on the mythology. It managed to both completely respect the timeline and totally reinvent it, which is a trick I'm still impressed by. And Kurtzman and Orsi were, you know, a big part of that. They always said that Orsi was the one with the green blood. Yeah, that's the that he was thing. the bigger that yeah. he was the bigger fan. But I hope that I mean I think Kurtzman's had enough exposure now that I would imagine he's got you know a fair amount of knowledge about the show. Mm. And I just hope that yeah we can bring it back to that sort of sciency stories that that do work better on the small screen. I mean mm. yes I mean when we go to the cinema we want to you know a certain amount of bang for our buck. But on the small screen those. Those, some of those small Star Trek stories are still some of the greatest pieces of storytelling that you'll see. And it's no coincidence that shows like um, Next Generation, DS9 and Voyager launched the careers of a hell of a lot of people who are now in charge of essentially the TV renaissance. You know, people mm. like Ronald D. Moore, they all came out of this. Um, Star Trek used to have an open door policy on scripts. Um, so people like Marty Knox, who went on to write for Buffy, mm. were able to submit scripts to this show as it was happening and that's a pretty amazing thing and and hopefully if they get some of that kind of spirit back and and that kind of talent then this can be amazing I wonder if that will happen these days when you look back at uh, Next Gen for example it's very episodic and nowadays TV tends to be it, it tends to have arcs and everything tends to be about a 22 episode arc but, but even you know very, it was almost like a space procedural in a way Star it was Trek. Um, but, but even I mean so by the end of you know by the end of um, the next generation there were beginning to be more sort of arc stories yeah, obviously and yeah. DS9 was all about the arc in the, mm-hmm. in the later seasons um, because it's all about that arc mm. about that arc no it's all about episodes <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, but I think yeah, if they if they sort of build on that, they could be on something kind of interesting. And I just I'm I'm hopeful. I'm not I'm not you know complacent yet, but I'm really hopeful for this. There has been some speculation that with Kurtzman involved, it could be a sort of spin-off from the movies from the rebooted series. Do you think that could happen? So what you know, John Cho goes off on his own adventures. Yeah, kind of thing. or or even a sort of uh, alternate universe, Next Generation, or something where we see sort of rebooted Picard. I I would I would not. I really wouldn't, um, but you know, 
I'm sure they'll come up with something. I would I would try and find a new spin on it. I mean, there's been talk for years of a sort of Starfleet Academy kind of show. That was that was mooted for ages and ages. Maybe do something like that. Maybe do Starfleet Headquarters. Mm. That would be interesting, actually, because you could have all of these, you know, maverick captains off in deep space doing their own thing. We kept having in the next generation, particularly, you'd have these um, admirals coming in and causing trouble. Let's see why. Yeah, I, I, I'd hope they would do something new. Although we, uh, they'd be daft as well at some point if they didn't reboot Picard. Who would, would you cast? Have... Jason Statham. Jason Statham. <laughs> Make it so, no. Make it so, you mug. Put the kettle on, Errol. <laughs> I know that's not Jason too. Anyway, um, but yeah, cool. Uh, what else? What else? What else? What else? We do have a, a much sadder news that came through last night, which is the the death at only sixty five mm. of Melissa Matheson, um, who of course is best known as the screenwriter of E. T. She also wrote films like The Black Stallion, The Indian in the Cupboard, Kundan. Um She did the English translation of Ponyo, which is a gorgeous little film, and she has one still to come with um, Spielberg's adaptation of Roald Dahl's The BFG. Mm. Um, I mean, sixty five is is young these days it, you know it felt like she was still going strong and I think the BFG was going to be a little bit of a you know a boost again and, and get her back in the spotlight and I'm I'm very very sad uh, to hear this if she had only ever done ET uh, it would be a great loss Absolutely. frankly and she did a lot more she broke my heart when I was age six that woman yeah phenomenal screenplay for ET when you think about it when you really sit down I mean that's a difficult movie to, to nail tonally and yes obviously Spielberg did a lot as well, but the screenplay does a lot of the heavy lifting. Do we know if she'd finished her work on the BFG? Is I believe so, yes. So we'll, we'll get to see her swan song, I suppose. Yes. Because that's got to be good, isn't it? Well, I've, I'm feeling hopeful for that film. I'm feeling very positive about that one. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's Spielberg and it's the BFG. and That's a know, dream team, isn't that's it? That's a pretty dream team. And then yeah. you've got Matheson on yeah. the script. Duties. I, I, yeah, that one. I'd be amazed if that isn't good. So I think that will be, hopefully that will be a very fitting memorial. Fantastic screenwriter. And uh, a very, very sad loss. And you're absolutely right. No age at all. Uh, Melissa Matheson, who died yesterday, aged 65. Okay, and there's some, some other things to talk about as well. Um, so, there were Star Wars posters. They came out yesterday. It's always fun to talk about posters and trailers mm. on, a, on a podcast. Um, <laughs> but there were five character posters. And in fact, I referred to it at the beginning of the podcast. Chewbacca is not one of them. What? What the hell's going on? Second so, round. He's the big finale. <sighs> Don't don't get me started. Jabaka's my favorite character, but yes, I have a Yoda lightsaber umbrella. Uh huh. And yesterday, uh, I cut myself on it, which felt like the, the a betrayal. Right. Sorry, cut myself on my lightsaber umbrella. I did. Okay. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to let you know that. Um, but so who who were the five posters? It was Harrison Ford as mm-hmm. Han Solo, Carrie Fisher as Leia, with mm-hmm. lens flare, with lens flare, all obscuring their eyes. That's what we should point out. An eye in the An eye, an yeah. eye, yes. Their right eye. Uh, there was John Boyega as Finn. Daisy Ridley yep. as Ray. Yep. And Adam Driver in his Kylo Ren mask. Dun, dun, I mean, it could dun, just be dun. the mask. We don't even know well, he's in there. Well, yeah, maybe it's Chewie <laughs> under there. <gasps> there you go, Chris. He's there after all. Chewie would never turn to the dark side. <laughs> Did we all know that? He's just in disguise. Oh. Oh, that's good. <laughs> oh, that works. Or maybe it's Luke under there. Uh, no, let's not get into the conspiracy no, theories. That's not, let's not go there. No, that's what the internet want me to believe. Then. No, that's, no, stop it. Put it down the well. Get in the sea, etc. So, what do we think of the posters? Then this this fairly strange affectation where everyone's covering their right eye. Why are they doing that? 
Uh, well, as a few people on our Facebook page mentioned, maybe they're just the, the optician or something. They're getting their eyes tested. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. It's very important in space because the radiation could damage your retina. This is true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe it's just a stylish choice, you know. But why? Because you want to have the lightsabers and the blasters in there. It's and visual where consistency, else do you fit, isn't where it? Where else do you fit them in a, in a tiny little poster? But why the right eye? Um, what does it signify? Is it a tribute to the dearly departed left eye of TLC? <laughs> <laughs> Helen, how many times do I have to tell you? Don't go chasing waterfalls. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it. Um... No. <laughs> I mean... I rule that one out right away. Well, it's your theory. Come up with your theory. My theory, Helen, is that it, it indicates that yeah. we're not seeing the full picture. Okay. And neither are they. And that there is something in The Force Awakens that is hidden <gasps> from us all. But like a phantom menace. Yes. <laughs> like I'm an so a, sorry. <laughs> but it's standing to our right. So... <laughs> So whoever's on the so way of the... So is, it, is it Ant or Deck that, then we, that we should be worried about in that Ant. case? It's Ant. Okay, from, from the viewer's point of view, Deck is on the right. How have we gone to this? Uh, but from <laughs> Deck's point of view, Ant is on his right. So it's all about perspective, isn't it? <laughs> it's all about Helen, I've got to say, it, from who's, a certain point of view. the one with less hair? That's how I tell. Isn't it Deck? Deck's got a receding hairline. See, how have we got on to discussing Ant and Deck? Because one I of mean, them always stands on the right. It's so. my fourth favourite subject, but <laughs> all right, I'll tell you about Ant and Deck. Born in 1971. <laughs> no, I don't know how old they are. Uh, what else should we talk about? Uh, very, very um, quickly. We should uh, mention very quickly uh, that the best movie Batman of all time, um, by which, of course, I mean Will Arnett's Lego Batman, uh, is obviously getting his own film, and he now has an Alfred, and that will be played by Ray Fiennes. Oh. Um, which seems like awfully good casting. Does this just seem like the, this is the Batman film you want to see? In this, a way? Is, this, <laughs> is my, this is my Batman film. Uh, honestly, Will Arnett. Okay, I mean Michael Keaton. You know, we can we can argue by which of them is better, but basically it's Will Arnett all the way for me. And uh, Michael Sarah as Michael Sarah as, as Robin. As Robin, that's just perfect. On board, uh, Rosario Dawson as Batgirl. Zach Galifianakis is apparently still circling the role of the Joker. But yeah, I'm 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 thrilled. Uh, and then the last thing we're going to talk about uh, this week is we've got loads of things to get through. Uh, Alicia Vikander is potentially Lisbeth Salander, not just because it rhymes, but um, <laughs> Sony are looking at making another Girl with the Dragon Tattoo movie based on the most recent book that came out, The Girl in the Spider's Web, mm. which was not written by Stieg Larsson no. because, you know, obviously, reasons uh, but it was written by someone who was it written by uh, David Lagerkrantz David Lagerkrantz apologies if I'm not pronouncing that correctly uh, and it just came out and it's another book about uh, Mikhail Blomqvist uh, played by Daniel Craig of course in the David Fincher movie and Lisbeth Salander another adventure for them and of course played by Rooney Mara in the David Fincher movie which did well at the box office but not well enough to warrant an immediate sequel or indeed the completion of that trilogy so I'm intrigued if Sony are indeed going ahead that they're skipping mm. the rest of that trilogy going straight to this book which I haven't read but from what I understand wasn't brilliantly received I have a theory that sometimes the sometimes you know moderately good books are the ones to adapt I don't think you should probably try to adapt classics mm. most of the time they turn out better Jaws is of course a perfect example The Godfather not, not a bad example either but Alicia Vikander of course actual Swede true 
Um, and she's, I mean, she's made what, I think six of her films have been released this year in the end. I think one moved into next, one or two moved into next year. At one point it was looking like eight. But, I mean, she's only got like two films lined up for next year, so she yeah. must have a hole in her schedule She now. must be kicking herself. She must be going around the house going, I don't know what I'm doing. I've I, haven't, just, I haven't uh, shot four films this week. What's happening? Slowed down massively. Do we okay. think, though, Numi replaces the ultimate incarnation of that character? You know, as much as I love the Fincher film, and yeah. I, I love Fincher, but um, it did sort of feel slightly redundant. It was almost a sort of really close remake to that, yeah. to the Swedish original. I think the Swedish one was still the best. I mean, she's the first, clearly. I preferred her version of that character to Rooney Mara's, but I don't know. Clearly, they want to keep on doing it. Okay, that's it for movie news. Tons of movie news. Uh, we're going to have another guest now. Uh, Sarah Ronan has been one of the best actresses around since she burst onto the scene with an Oscar nomination for Atonement uh, when she was 13. She's now 21. Um, since then, her choices have been largely impeccable, working with some great directors and some very, very good films. Uh, she's added again with uh, John Crowley's Brooklyn, in which she plays a young Irish woman torn between the old world, Ireland, and a new Brooklyn. Uh, I went along to speak to her recently and my accent immediately got 89% thicker, so I did. Uh, word of warning, a rogue mobile phone may intrude upon this interview every now and again. We couldn't track down the culprit. Uh, it wasn't me. Really? It wasn't me. Wow. So who does that leave? <gasps> Sir Sharonan. Just saying. Enjoy. Uh, we're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by Sir Sharonan, star of Brooklyn. How are you? I'm grand. How are you? I'm not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, I find this thing happens... When I talk to uh, fellow Irish slash Northern Irish people, and my accent just gets noticeably thicker. I know it's actually gotten yeah. thicker in the last minute or the so. The minute I walked into the room, it just got a little bit thicker. It did. I'll, yeah, I'll start saying thicker in a second as well. Um, but it's um, happening before me. It eyes. is before your very eyes. Does that happen to you? Is that a phenomenon that happens to you when you're? Yeah, I, I wasn't even sure when you came in. I was trying to figure out where you are from. But right. isn't it mad though when that happens when Irish people get together? Like automatically you get like hyper Irish, you know, the Irish, the Irishness is upped big time. Yeah. And even yesterday we, um, we did uh, a Q&A at BAFTA uh-huh. and uh, myself and Colm and Nick and Fanola and all of them, we were chatting away and all of a sudden I mentioned um, something, th- this thing that John had said to me, we were doing all these dinner scenes and in, in, um, Mrs. Keogh's in the in the boardroom yeah. kind of yeah. thing, you know, and it was the only time that we almost got into an argument with each other when he said to me, "Right, you know, I don't want you to eat your stew with a spoon. I want you to eat it with a fork." Right. And I thought, who eats their stew with a fork? I've never heard of anyone eating their stew with a fork. And I said it to him, and I was like, uh, it was incredulous. I was kind of like, what do you mean? I wouldn't, I wouldn't eat it with a fork. Would you eat it with a fork? And it went around the whole room, mm-hmm. and everyone was divided on it. And I brought it up last night, and it's a touchy subject for both of us. <laughs> and all of a sudden, Colm chimed in, and he was on my side, and we just got so Irish. It was yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the answer is spoon, isn't it? I mean, yes, I've thank never, you. I've never heard of someone eating a fork. How yeah. are you supposed to eat the soup? What sort of barbarian does that? I 
John Crowley, apparently. <laughs> Maybe it's a Cork thing. I don't know. <laughs> Let's not start any wars. That would be a, that would be a bad idea. The war's already begun. It certainly has. It certainly has. Uh, but the film, The Brookman, is, is a fantastic film. It's, it's, it's really uh, moving and emotional and uh, packs quite a punch. And did, did it have more of an emotional impact for you than I imagine most other films you've done, you know, given that you started off your 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 journey in life yeah. uh, in New York, I'm sure you don't remember it. You were very very young, obviously, but uh, you've you've done that journey in reverse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, initially that that was a huge draw for me and I was very conscious of finding the right first Irish project to do. This was the first Irish film that I did and it was very important for me to, to make sure that felt right and of course mm. when this came along the fact that it was about an Irish-American relationship um, really spoke to me but I have to say you know it was another year or so before we actually made the film mm-hmm. and when we had made it um, about eight months before I moved over to London and was really right in the middle of that homesickness and that grief that you know we've all felt when when you leave home and and I think the the thing that really strikes you when you move away at first is the realization that you're not able to go back you know you can't quite go back to how it was before and that's scary and and you don't know how long this feeling is going to last for and so I wasn't over that by any means when when I was making the film and I was in such a kind of emotional place that um I couldn't separate the two you know where did you where did you shoot the film? We shot the Irish segment in Enniscorthy, which is where it's set. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we did one week in Dublin. Some we did some studio stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we went to Montreal for about four weeks okay. to shoot 1950s Brooklyn because <laughs> 2015 Brooklyn is like hipster city. So, so it's a typical bit of movie magic. Yeah, exactly. Films Brooklyn is set largely in Brooklyn. Yeah, shoots in Montreal. <laughs> shoots in Montreal. Shoots in Montreal makes sense. We did two days in New York. We did one day on Coney Island because you know you you couldn't uh, you couldn't fake anywhere else for Coney. And then we we shot on Clinton Street for our very last few scenes together, okay. myself and Emery. So, and uh, was it important to you in a way to set foot in New York, even for just yeah. a, a smidgen? It really was. You know, it, I moved back from New York when I was three years old, but. The first time I properly went back after that was when I was about 14 Mm. and I had an instant connection to this place like it felt right to be here and you know Ireland will always be my home first and foremost but New York um, it does feel like a second home and it always has done and the idea of not shooting any of it in New York was was kind of mental so it was really nice that we got to end it there and my mum actually came over because it was around the time of her birthday and so I brought her over for the last couple of days to New York and um, you know that was very much hers and my dad's experience over there and Mm. um, she really felt like the film captures that that you know that feeling that you get when you move over to the states uh, especially from a small place like Ireland you know mm. and it i said to her when she came over that i really wanted to finish this experience by going to Ellis Island I had never been to Ellis Island okay. took us forever to get to Ellis Island the queue was like two hours long you, you know if you're, go- if you're going to Ellis Island make sure that you get the tickets first and oh, then yeah. queue up because people queue up and they think they're going to get their tickets but they're not it's very confusing <laughs> anyway eventually we got there and it was amazing for me to to learn about all these other cultures and all these other um 
different types of people who had come through Ellis Island. I always assumed that it was just kind of the Irish really that had gone through there. And um, and it just made me appreciate on a whole new level um, this community, you know, through better or, or worse that New York had, had become, you know. Mm. That that it always was really yeah, absolutely. Well, it's such a, it's such an amazing place. Um, but obviously, you're, you're going back to New York as well yeah. for the Crucible. Um, I am. I'm going back in January. Yeah, that's going to be pretty exciting. That's a hell of a play. Tell me about it. Yeah, it's um, it's a little nerve wracking. I've got to say, um, I'm very scared. <laughs> but I was very scared going into Brooklyn as well, and it was the most, you know gratifying experience so I am dying to get into it I have to say What's scary about it? The unknown I think I mean I know how I prepare myself for film I know what to expect I know how I work on a film set I, I don't know how I'll work on stage and um, what I'll need or, or anything like that and I guess just you know with theatre no matter what technique does need to come into it somehow that the physicality is important and the whole idea of you know projection projection of your voice mm-hmm. um, is something I'll have to get used to so and also I'm just terrified of fluffing up my lines that's <laughs> honestly I've had nightmares about it and I haven't been able to well, sleep honestly for well. the last year or so I've like there's been times where I just can't get to sleep because I'm worried I'm going to fluff up my lines do you fluff up your lines on a regular basis on a movie set no well there you go <laughs> But it's because I know that I have another take. Do you know what I mean? And you can compartmentalise your lines as well. You know, that's today's lines, tomorrow is another. Yeah, Yeah. exactly, exactly. But the only thing is with with theatre is that it's so repetitive and you're doing so much rehearsal that um, hopefully it'll be ingrained in my brain by the time we we actually start the run. You'll know everyone else's lines as well. Yeah, that's what Mam said, yeah. 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 Uh, So who's your John Proctor again? Uh, Ben Wisher. Ben Wisher. No big whoop. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Whatever. He's all right, I guess. And Sophie Ocanedo. <laughs> Sophie Ocanedo, yeah. yeah. Kieran yeah. Hines. Yeah, that's not a bad cast. It's all right, yeah. Have you started rehearsals or are you going to start when you go over in January? Yeah, in January. Okay, yeah. okay. So you, you don't have the, 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 the text up here yet? It's no, but I'm, I'm going to start now next week when I go back. I'm going to okay. start. I'm getting nervous now just even thinking about I, it. No, no, I should stop talking about it. Um, <laughs> but I, I will say that I was uh, I was Reverend Hale in a university production. Were you? And I knocked it out the park. I'd say you did. I bet you did. Absolutely. It's still going the ball. Uh, yeah. But you'll be fine. You, f- you seem like a Hale man. Yep, I do, yeah. yeah. I'm not quite a John Proctor. No, not quite so a John Proctor. My, you know, but, you know, Hale's important too. It's so, very important. So if you come and see the play, are you going to be very, very um, critical of us? Especially of Bill Camp uh, right okay right yeah let's, let's see if he's I'd, got I'd be, the goods you know I'd be heckling you know but you know <laughs> oh come it. on <laughs> can't say it like that it'll all be what's fine what's he doing <laughs> but um, your, your process when you're choosing stuff um, you say that Brooklyn's your first Irish film I mean I guess uh, in a way I almost thought of Byzantium as an Irish film for yeah. you obviously Neil Jordan you shot a lot yeah. of it in Dublin as well but, but it's, it's interesting you don't consider it to be an Irish film no it, it's not it's not even that I, what I mean by it being my first Irish film is that it's set in Ireland and mm-hmm. I'm playing uh, an Irish person yeah um, so no Byzantium is very much I mean it, it's a part Irish production and we shot pretty much all of it in Ireland apart from one week in Hastings and I was so happy to be shooting at home and our crews at home are, are terrific and um, no that it, you know it was an Irish film but this was an Irish story and this was my first time playing an Irish woman yeah. and that was very new for me and so it was important to to make sure it was the right 
project, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, so how do you go about that? Is it just a gut feeling? Or, because I imagine you've been sent a lot of Irish yeah. scripts over the years. I've been sent a few and they they just haven't felt right or maybe it wasn't quite the right fit and we were trying to make it work just mm. for the sake of it or, you know, whatever. And, and I didn't want to, to do that really, you know. Um, but I do think you have to, I think really the only thing you can rely on at the end of the day is your instinct, is your, your gut feeling. Mm. With most things, not just with work or, you know, for me with picking out a script but um, with relationships with where you want to live with you know what pair of socks you're going to buy you know all that (laughs) kind of stuff stand to your good instinct at the end of the day Um, these ones feel right Um, but but also a lot of other things come into it a lot of other elements you know the director and who's involved in making it because if this film was put in the wrong hands it could have turned into this melodramatic soppy film mm. um and it's really not that at all um because it it was uh in the right hands it was made by by the right people for the job you know mm. and uh, in terms of the role itself in terms of Eilish I mean it, it seems to me I mean you've you've had lead roles in the past and you've but this one your own screen for almost every single scene I think there's maybe mm. two two scenes in the movie in which you're not you're not a part of them yeah um what sort of burden was that for you? And, you know, as you're going through your career, uh, are you getting better at handling the burden of, of more and more scenes? And mm. I mean, it's never a burden to yeah. have loads of scenes. I, yeah. you know, and it's honestly, it's not even in a kind of ego way. I love yeah. being in every single day. I love, I've done a couple of things where I've played, where it's been an ensemble cast and it's been so much fun to do that stuff. But, um, I started out, you know, doing films where I, I was in from start to finish. Yeah. And to feel like you're grafting along with everyone else and you're working as hard as the crew are um, and you're you're there for the very start of this journey to the very end um, makes it very special and you put so much into it, you know. And I think with this, the the pressure that I put on myself came from the fact that we were shooting it at home. And as I said, it was my first kind of Irish role, I guess, is what I what I should say, maybe. But the whole thing of like being in every scene, I, I love that, you know, I yeah. love because it gives you time, even though with something like this, every supporting role is so well written and well rounded. When you're in from, from beginning to end, mm. it gives you so much time to to work out what you want to do and and really get to kind of grow with that character and with the people that you're working with. And I, you know, there was one film I did a few years ago, it was with Colin actually, and um, they had started about a month before me. And I remember I came in on the first day and I, I, you know, I was shooting on it for about six weeks or something like that, out of say the 10 weeks. But the idea of coming in a month later when everyone had gotten to know each other, they all knew how the other one worked and, you know, the the crew knew the cast and vice versa. For me to walk into that, I felt very strange because I wasn't used to that at all. That's interesting. Yeah. Whereas this way, you got to watch other people do that. You got to watch Jim Broadbent come into the situation for for a week or so or Donald Gleeson for a couple of weeks, I imagine. Yeah. So the shoe was on the other foot. Uh, So um, I mentioned Donald Gleeson, obviously. This was filmed, I'm guessing, around... He had just finished Star Wars, or he was about to do Star Wars. He was I mean, about to do. He was about to do Star Wars. Yeah. Obviously, you had quite famously, quite publicly, 
uh, gone up for Star Wars as well. Did you have a, a yeah. chat about it at all? Was that something no, that well, it's gas because it, it was it was such a public thing. I think someone someone mentioned it. They asked me had I gone up for Star Wars, and I was yeah. like, yeah, and like so did everyone else that was my <laughs> age and older and younger. I mean, JJ saw everyone for it. So it wasn't. Yeah. I I read the same scenes that everyone else read and it wasn't like I was on a top list or you know anything like that yeah. we all went in for I was living in London at the time the scenes were sent out via courier to everyone you brought them back in with you you shredded them. oh no actually you had to return them I think after you read them it was it was nuts like it was mad um, so exciting to go in and pretend you had a lightsaber in your hand and all the rest of it but um but like everyone goes in for that stuff. Every big studio film, yeah. there there can be such a big thing made out of it. But like if there's a, a female role that's between the age of, you know, 16 and 25, chances are me and, and most other actresses will be seen for it. So right. okay. But but we couldn't talk about it because we didn't know when he was still on the film. And I think he like disappeared one day. And we didn't, he he wasn't working, I don't think, or they, they had to change the schedule, whatever it was, anyway, he wasn't in. And um, all of a sudden we heard on set, oh yeah, Donald's in Star Wars. And he had found out a few days before that and he couldn't tell anyone. So he'd like come into set and he couldn't tell anyone he was in feckin' Star Wars, you know. <laughs> uh, how did you react when he, when he arrived back? I was annoyed lightsaber? he didn't tell us. Yeah. It's a shame. It's a real shame. Real shame. It is. It is. But, sure. it, but it's interesting. I mean, even at the fact that you and as you say, you know, if any role like that comes up, then you'll be in contention because the roles you've chosen so far, that you look know, throughout your career, um, are not those big studio blockbuster films. No. Uh, but that is something that you would you would do. Yeah, I would yeah. do it if it was the right thing. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm not seeking out those kind of films necessarily and I'm also not avoiding them you know mm. um, or making a point of not doing a, a big film you know mm. it's uh, the security that you get with with something like a studio film or a Star Wars or you know something of that type is that you know it's probably going to get released and someone's going to see it and I you know nine times out of ten the films that I've done have been very very small and done on a very very tight budget and some of them are are great and everyone works really hard on them and nobody gets to see them whether it's down to um the the promotion for it or you know the money people come in and they they don't know what the demographic is or <laughs> they they don't know what the audience is or whatever they they it, it drives you mad when they try and pigeonhole the yeah, films, yeah, you know. And yeah. um, and I know, I can understand because there's a lot of films that are that are just made for okay, it's for this audience, it's for the YA group, or this is for the you know eighteen to twenty five or whatever it is. With something like Brooklyn, the amount of um, men and and young boys who mm. have watched it, yeah. who have responded to it just as much as as women have because it's a universal story and yeah. and it's and it's also it's done in in Nick's kind of classic style of just um writing about a life you know and what happens in a life and that's something that anyone can relate to when it's not gender specific really no absolutely agreed and uh your 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 uh, performance in the uh, the movie has generated old word buzz uh <laughs> Having been nominated already for an Oscar, 
obviously it's very hard to speculate about what might happen. Yeah. But um, I just wanted to talk about your your last experience actually yeah. of being nominated for an Oscar because I imagine it must have been quite surreal. It was, you know. I mean, it happened when I was thirteen, you yeah. know, and I was I was a child and. Um, I had been working for a few years and I think to me, I mean, it happened and it was amazing. I was in New Zealand at the time and I was shooting Lovely Bones and um, Dad stayed up all night waiting to to see if I'd been nominated and Mam and I were like, yeah, we're going to sleep because we've got to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> and then all of a sudden we were fast asleep and we heard Dad go, yes, yes. And he was like freaking out. And we came downstairs and, and, you know, got the news. And it was brilliant. And I was kind of like, oh, great, we get to go to the Oscars. I've been watching that on the telly since I was like <laughs> four. And really, I think, genuinely, I think that's why it excited me back then is because I watched it on the telly. Right. You know, um, television's so exciting. Um, <laughs> and and so, yeah, it was it was terrific. But I think, like, Mam has said to me, she said it to me at the time and she said it to me since that she's really glad I didn't win I mean I was never going to win and, and that wasn't kind of that wasn't going to happen but um, she was glad I didn't because I was a kid and I was too young and I yeah. I hadn't had a bunch of experience yet and I hadn't worked for long enough um, for it to really truly mean something and I always think about you know Scorsese when he finally got his Oscar and mm. Jesus what that must have meant to him yeah, to yeah. somebody who is one of the greatest filmmakers on earth and has made some of the best most memorable films but he's also dedicated himself to it and worked at it for such a long time and, yeah. and his work is so beloved that when he finally got it it meant more than just oh you made a great film you know yeah yeah Absolutely. So, but imagine if you had one, it would have been a hell of a doorstop. Well, yeah, no, it would have been great. Now, <laughs> I wouldn't have said no to it. Like, <laughs> I reject this Oscar. No, I don't want it. I'm don't too want young. It. I can't. I can't handle it. You take it back. No, 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 no. <laughs> Sasha Ronan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks Thank so you. much. So there you go, Sasha Ronan. I hope the mobile phone didn't intrude upon your enjoyment of that interview too much, or indeed the thick Irish accent subtitles are available at www.filldissemblian.com. <laughs> He has a subtitling service and he'll do it for a reasonable price. Okay, so let's talk about the movies that are out this week. Last week's uh, review section was a bit of a, <laughs> bit of a farce. It was a howling wasteland, frankly. Chris. It was, wasn't it? Because Spectre came out and there wasn't a lot out. And Anyway. Uh, but this week, lots of films. Mm. Before we go on, I will say that the Spectre spoiler special is out on Monday uh, featuring Sam Mendes waxing lyrical about all the big twists and reveals and everything. Inspector, so that is essential listening. Go and check it out when it's up on Monday. But for the time being, let's concentrate on this week's releases and let's talk about Brooklyn. Yeah, this is a very hotly tipped ticket this week. So, uh, Saoirse Ronan plays Ailish Lacey, um, who's an Irish girl from a very small town uh, in, I think it was, was it Wexford? Waterford? Wexford. Um, who leaves home for a new life in New York. Um, she's sort of uh, helped along by by a protective priest who's played by Jim Broadbent, who sets her up with a landlady played by Julie Walters and a job, and she's trying to sort of find her feet while being crippled with homesickness because in those days you basically left and, you know, you probably never went back unless you were very, very lucky. But a family tragedy does bring her home um, just mm-hmm. as she's finding her feet in New York, just after she uh, she forms a relationship with an uh, Italian-American guy called Tony, um, and she's she's called home and finds herself there tempted to stay because suddenly things are better, suddenly the outlook is brighter at home. Donald Gleeson 
uh, as Jim is around and suddenly there's a, there's a guy who might interest her back mm-hmm. at home. Mm-hmm. Um, her job prospects have suddenly improved and she's genuinely torn about, do I like do Natalie I leave all this? Yes, a lot like Natalie and Bruglia. She's, she's torn, do I leave all this? Do I, you know, go back? Do I, do I leave my family again and, uh, and, and find my way in New York? Mm-hmm. Um, she's torn between these two guys and she's torn betw- between essentially two lives. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's a really... I don't know. I find it a really affecting uh, dilemma. I mean, maybe because, you know, I'm Irish and I live over here. It's not nearly as far and it's not nearly as, as big a And shift. you've been to New York? I've been to New York. Um, so, and you've, but met, is, you've met two guys? I, I have. I'm this in the room uncanny. with two guys right now. It's incredible. Holy cow. Um, Holy cow. But no, it, it, it's just, it is an affecting drama because I think it's it, it does speak to sort of universal issues. Yes. And even if you haven't you know, had to deal with this kind of dilemma. Someone in your family has, you know, my mm. great aunt lived this life at a, around this time, for example. Um, and, and it just does kind of bring home to you what, what a big deal it was. And, and quite frankly, how sort of pioneering and brave people can be to, to move halfway around the world. Saoirse Ronan's great in it, really, really good. She's very restrained. It's a little bit, I, I just saw The Hunger Games last night. It reminds me of that, that sort of level of restraint and buttoned upness, and yet you never have a moment's doubt what she's thinking, what she's feeling, mm. what she's doing. Oh, she's fantastic, and she's she's barely off screen. She is as yeah, well. Yeah, carries um, the film completely. She, yeah, I think there's maybe two scenes in the film she's not actually in. Sounds about right. Maybe, but she's great. And really uh, great. you know, and, and great support around her. Um, Emery Cohen as Tony is is really charming. He's, he's got the a sort of he's the American. Mm-hmm. He has a sort of uh, a Brandoiness about him, doesn't he? Um, I, I think go very that far. deliberately. I'm not saying he. You know, oh, in terms of his, you know, in terms of his look, in terms yeah. of a little bit of physicality. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a nicer character than I think than any Brando. Oh character yeah, of that no year. question, no question. Um, and that's the, that's the really interesting thing about the film that I thought uh, a the dilemma only really comes in the last half hour. Yeah, the first hour. A half of the movie, I think, is set up. Uh, it's all around Eilish and all around, you know, coming to terms with this homesickness, this appalling homesickness, which just, you know, afflicts her. It's a desperately sad film at times. Um, and then it's a, it's a wonderfully hopeful film mm. uh, at times as well. But um, what I found interesting about it was, and this is based on a, on a novel. Yeah, uh, which I Colin haven't Tobin. read. Yeah, yeah, which I haven't read, so I don't know whether the, the, the dilemma is presented in the same way in the novel. But in movies like this, generally speaking, you get a nice guy who at some point reveals himself to be a dick. Yeah. And that doesn't happen here. So her dilemma at the end of the movie is, do I go with the genuinely lovely guy in New York or the genuinely lovely guy in Ireland? And then it becomes it becomes almost more about hope and freshness and new starts and the old world versus the new I thought it was a lovely lovely film really yeah. did yeah teared up a few times I, I'm, I'm, I'm man, man enough to say that I thought Sarah Sharon was phenomenal and it's just beautifully written by Nick Hornby John Crowley directed with, with beautiful restraint really really good film yeah lovely and we gave that four stars four four stars four stars for Brooklyn uh, let's move on now to Burnt the artist formerly known as Adam Jones in which Bradley Cooper plays a chef called Adam Jones, who comes to London to redeem himself on the food scene. I believe this was also the artist formerly known as Chef. Uh, I think he had that title until another film called Chef with Jon Favreau came along. And I think, to be honest, is probably the superior film. The Favs. The Favs, yeah. Mm -hmm. He he did a pretty good job on that. Uh, This one comes from John Wells, uh, and it has Sienna Miller, Omar Sy, 
and uh, Daniel Brühl supporting mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and Cooper plays this incredibly cocky uh, demon ridden chef who's moves to London to sort of start a new life and to chase some Michelin stars he gets backing from Daniel Brühl in a sort of improbable way creme brulee thank you <laughs> and uh it's essentially, you know, a behind-the-scenes restaurant movie, but um, without any sort of charm or... Rats. <laughs> <laughs> or indeed the soundtrack of, of Chef. Yeah. Which I think contributed an awful lot to the, the charm and success of that film. Yeah. Not because it's a film where you want to eat everything. That's the big difference for me between yeah. this and Burnt, because in Chef, there's a scene where he... he pulls open some uh, barbecued brisket mm. and oh yeah exactly oh. that noise went round the entire cinema when I saw it and and there's no equivalent to that here is there it's a shame because this is this is a fertile topic I think this is the potential setting for a very good drama it's a, a thriller almost you know it's a it's it's a very high pressure environment it's yeah. very uh, yeah you know there's lots of drama there's lots of sparks flying but uh I don't think it quite pulled it off this time. It's um, tricky, isn't it? It's it's you'd think it's a it's a profession that would be suited to the big screen in a way because of that, that hypertension and the fact that, you know, chefs are type A personalities and you know, they're really driven and yeah. they're brilliant. But obviously it's also a very sensory thing mm-hmm. and it's very hard to get that across on, on screen. And I think one of the things the chef did and that this film doesn't is that chef, obviously he decided at one point to leave the gourmet scene behind and goes off and does a food truck and that food is much more, there's something you can relate to about, you know, brisket and about tacos. And I'm literally drooling, this is bad. Do you, do you remember that? Um, do you remember when he grills the cheese sandwich? Oh, <gasps> do you remember the scene? <laughs> Why are we talking about Chef more than we're talking about Bernd? Well, do you remember the scene where he better. seduces Scarlett Johansson through yeah, the medium right. of cooking? And yeah, I just also like, he cooks. I ran out of a saucepan. <laughs> he cooks with garlic pasta, and it still works. Well, of course, garlic's good. Yeah, but you know, then they kiss. I'm just saying. It's the only way well, in which that scenario is even slightly plausible that that someone like John Favreau could seduce Scarlett Johansson. Whoa, I'm whoa, sorry. Whoa. But but you know, they're saying she, Happy Hogan and the Black Widow couldn't get it on. I, I think <laughs> she can do better. Is all I'm saying. <gasps> First podcast, and you drop a contra bomb. What? Favs is amazing. He's no, a, I love I love Favs. The Favs is my my homeboy. You don't you don't say what you just said and then try and take it back <laughs> like that. And, you know, it's fine. You've 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 drawn a line in the sand. You've you've built a bridge and you've you've burned it. That's fine. That's fine. So tell me, what did we get? Welcome, John. Burnt? So we give. <laughs> oh yeah, burnt. I remember now. Yes, that's the thing we're talking about. Well, the, the, the point I was making was Chef's food was accessible and relatable and tasty and made you want to eat it. And this is about mission starred food. And as Ollie Richards, I think, yeah. uh, of this parish, said on Twitter this week, it's a lifeless film about lifeless people making lifeless food. And that's the thing. I mean, mission starred food is great. Gourmet food is fantastic, but and it looks amazing. And I love watching Master Chef. As anyone who knows me knows, but. I don't know, on the big screen, it doesn't really... I think it can, I just don't think it does here. Okay. You know, I think there have been better films about food. Even No Reservations, I think, was better. And There you go, I said it. Ratatouille, obviously. Yeah, that's, no question. That's the best sort of cooking film, almost. Yeah. We're all forgetting the absolute apex of the genre. Love's Kitchen. Yeah, we are, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> that's on purpose. Quite deliberately. <laughs> Has anyone seen that? Yes, Love's I Kitchen. Have. Starring Gordon Ramsay as himself. <laughs> uh, right. We gave Burnt two, two stars. stars. Okay, thank you. Two, um, two, not a recommendation. Not Mission the Stars either. And not no, no resets no. of any kind. Okay. 
That's a bit of a shame. Uh, next up, we have a documentary, He Named Me Malala, Hell's Bells. Yeah, this is the story of Pakistani activist and teenage schoolgirl uh, Malala Yousafzai, uh, who was uh, shot in the head uh, by the Taliban at the age of, I think, 15 for speaking out against them and in favour of women's education. Uh, she has since become, of course, a, a figure known worldwide. She has spoken to the UN. She has spoken to governments. She has been to the White House. She has won the freaking Nobel Peace Prize um, for her campaigning work around the world. She's gone to, you know, uh, to support women's education all over the world, all over Africa, all over everywhere. Um, she can't go back to Pakistan because they have told her if she does, she will be shot. Um, but this is about her her life, essentially, both before and after uh, that uh, that attack. It's about the background of, of what turned her into this this campaigner and this and this activist and this this fearless woman. Uh, much of which comes back to her father. Of course, the he of the of the title of this film is is her dad. He's a wonderful character in this. He's he's an absolutely fascinating figure himself. It's a great father daughter film. Genuinely, I came out and immediately wanted to call my dad because it's that kind of movie. Um, because it's it's just about how he inspired her and how she inspired him and and how they did great things together. And and yet she's also a very very normal person. And it shows her you know giggling over pictures of her favourite cricketers that she googles. And she also fancies Roger Federer, so she's clearly a woman of taste. <laughs> and you know and she she just is is a really charming figure who also has this incredibly serious thoughtful intelligent and outspoken side which mm. has done so much good and, and you know is beginning to bring so much change in the world so i thought it was wonderful we can see why you liked it i did what <laughs> me outspoken never anyway so we get roger this- federer <laughs> intelligent outspoken oh, hang on a second <laughs> Anyway, we give this four stars. And it wasn't even me reviewing it. I know, I know. I really want to see this. He named me Malala. Four stars. Uh, Probably the pick of the week. Sounds like it's a close second, but it's Brooklyn. This is the film of the week. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. I cannot recommend that film highly enough. Talk about Oscars for... Or just one Oscar. I mean, Saoirse Ronan is good, but I don't think she could win two Oscars for the same role. I mean, Um, it would be unprecedented. It would be unusual, Um, wouldn't it? Yeah, it could. I think she's she's in with a chance. I, I think at the moment, and we haven't really talked Oscar races yet because mm. it's crazy early, I think at the moment Brie Larson is the person to mm. beat. Saoirse Ronan's in the conversation. I read an article this week that said there are two locks at the moment. Uh, this was an Oscar prognosticator uh, called David Poland who, who wrote uh, there are two locks at the moment in the Oscar race. One is Brie Larson for Room and the other one I can't remember. What do you want? <laughs> Honestly. But yeah, the important thing is Brie Larson. I think it was also screenplay, or it might have been screenplay that he thought he thought was a lock. But Steve Jobs? No, it wasn't mm-hmm. Steve Jobs, funny enough. But um, it may not even have been a screenplay. But he definitely <laughs> said Brie Larson in, in Room. I remember that because I wrote it down. We shall see. Indeed. Time will tell. Also out this week, if you want to catch some other movies, uh, there's the gore-flecked zombie flick uh, Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse which was formerly known as Boy Scouts vs. Zombies but then they changed the title I prefer the original title I'll be honest we gave that three stars uh, it's a bit of bit of fun David Keckner from uh, Anchorman's in there as a as a zombie scout leader so it, if that's the sort of thing that floats your boat then go see Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse and also out this week is Kill Your Friend which is the a uh, movie based on John Niven's novel about a A&R executive at a recording company who rises to the top by, well, killing everyone around him. And also, as we talked about last week with Nicholas Holt, the star of the film, pissing on James Corden. That's true. So, 
so there's that. Uh, sadly, the film itself, uh, we didn't we didn't like it. Uh, we gave it two stars. It's uh, ultimately disappointing. Although Nicholas Holt is very good. Uh, so there we go. And that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, join us next week for more formulated fun. We'll be joined by Natalie Dormer, star of The Hunger Games colon Mockingjay Part 2. Uh, and of course Game of Thrones uh, and other things as well. Uh, so that's always very exciting. Until then, it is goodbye from Helen. Tiddly. It's goodbye from hmm, the new Jatola. No. The new Jeruni. Mm, closer. The new. The, the, new Jack on. City. New Jack. New New Jack City. Mm. Keep your nickname for John coming in. How was your first podcast, John? It was good. I hopefully didn't libel anyone. So no, you you didn't libel anyone, but you launched basically a war against John Favreau. John Favreau, if you're listening, I unreservedly apologise you definitely could go out with Scarlett Johansson the views of John Nugent do not represent the views of the Empire Podcast just wanted to get that out there we love you Fabs anytime you want to come in and cook us garlic pasta just saying what am I saying do <laughs> come in have I just offered myself to John Favreau I think I have and I think on that note it's goodbye for me as well I'm off to go home and get a saucepan out and leave the front door unlocked just in case Fabs wants to pop around apparently uh, see you next week Ha, 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 ha.